Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and an advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we welcome Scott Revlin. Scott Revlin is a board-certified behavior analyst in Ventura County, California, and a board member for the Autism Society of Ventura County. Over the past 20 years, he's been heavily involved in autism advocacy and parent training. What we hope to learn today is his perspective on how to empower families and how families can self-advocate through the process of gaining more and more opportunity for their children. Scott, do you mind giving us a, a little bit more of an introduction to yourself? Yeah, sure. No problem, Jeff. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Nice to, <laughs> nice to see you. Um, so, uh, you know, my, my autism ASD journey started back in uh, the late 90s at UCLA. So I was uh, an undergraduate student of Ivar Lovas's at UCLA. Um, and I was, I honestly... Uh, uh, found his class by accident. I was looking for an upper division and elective that fit in my schedule and just happened to come across behavior modification um, and ended up loving it so much. I stayed for a whole extra year at UCLA to take his course sequence, uh, worked in his clinic for about the next 10, 13 years, and then have subsequently worked for a couple different agencies, uh, ABA agencies focusing primarily on you know, delivering behavioral treatment to kids diagnosed with autism. And I would imagine just through all your years of practice, Scott, is that you've had a lot of opportunity to learn different family styles and to actually get to see a lot of parents who have been those stakeholders, those people that actually drive the decision-making in their community and really are the advocates for their child's opportunity for inclusion or opportunity for service in California. Scott, that actually brings me to a story that actually is driving this topic today. Um, it's, a, it's a very sad story. Um, uh, there, was, there was something in the news that, about uh, a tragic passing of a mother and a son in a California house fire. Um, this courageous woman went back into the home to try and help her teenage son um, get out of the house and to save him. And she's been his uh, shoulder to lean on his entire life. Um, he's affected, or he, will, he was affected by autism, um, and pretty severely. Uh, the woman's name was Fida Alamadi, and um, she leaves behind this legacy uh, focusing on advocacy, parent training, education, empowerment. Um, and what I'd really like to do today is take it back to her lasting legacy, which really is how are we fighting for these children in the community? How are we empowering other parents to really be able to provide that same sort of voice that she was able to provide to her son, Moo? Um, and the, tie that also back into the importance of inclusion. So, I mean, as I look at this, is that FIDA was one of those individual stalwarts of challenging the system, of getting what's better for her son. She fought tooth and nail for all those services. 
Um, you've been in the state of California where ABA accepted um, insurance, and this has not been too long since that mandate went through. Um, what did this look like to you? What are, what are some of the pros and cons that you've seen? And what does this mean to some of the families in the state? Uh, yeah, so my, my involvement in ABA uh, started well before insurance companies got into the game. Um, I, you know, I think in general, it's, it's been net positive. Um, you know, prior to the insurance company starting to pay, um, we had these, these high SES pockets um, where, you know, families had uh, enough resources to, you know, sue their school district or even seek out a very expensive psychologist to provide them with, with a diagnosis. Um, you know, so I, I worked in, in West Los Angeles for a long time, and I don't think we had a child south of the 10 freeway for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we were working in Santa Monica and Bel Air and Beverly Hills, Manhattan Beach. Um, and so when insurance companies started paying, it, it really expanded. There was more more access, more equal access to, to quality ABA than there was previously. And I think that's just, you know, absolutely one of the, the legacies of this parent and, and, and her, uh, her advocacy. Um, you know, prior to that, if a parent really had to attend IEP meetings as almost like a third full-time job, right? They had their know. own full-time job and then they had working with their kid at home and then attending all these meetings ad nauseum until things were settled. And that's just not someone something that a, uh, you know, a single parent or a, a family without means was, was able to do. Empathizing with that family's struggle, understanding how much is on their plate at all times and understanding that, you know, it's, it's not just finances that are going to get you out of this hole. It's finding the right care models. It's finding the ability to find community support. So you're not on an Island by yourself. Um, I still see it. And, and you had mentioned that, Finally, the um, the children that might not have the highest SES or social economic status are are accessing care right now. But I'd argue to say is that it still isn't completely equal. I know that um, in certain states, and Utah being one of them right now, is that you have the Department of Health trying to start to find resources because that access to care is limited. So they're fighting for families. They're out there saying, hey, we need extra funding in order to be able to provide high quality care. But they're also indicating that they need families to have voices through that process. So how would a family be able to to advocate for themselves? Uh, So at the Autism Society of Ventura County, what is the guidance that's being given when when you have families that need to self-advocate? Yeah, it's, it's tough. Again, it's, it's you, you have to have the luxury of time, the luxury of resources. Um, you know, the, the easiest thing I think for parents can do, and it's much easier now than it was in sort of the pre-internet days of the late nineties is just finding parents in your, in your same boat. Um, autism being a spectrum disorder. I mean, every, every case is so unique. The unique, the needs of each parent are so unique that it's, you almost have to find your niche. Um, and I think the internet and, and the autism society type, type entities out there are are doing a much better job at linking like-minded parents, parents who have the same concerns together. For instance, I I can tell you the autism society in Ventura County runs a very 
successful and, and uh, a well thought of uh, parent support group. And what we're finding is that we actually need multiple parent support groups. We need a support group for parents who are recently diagnosed, have kids who are recently diagnosed. We need support groups for parents whose kids are in college and have moved on and are, you know, dealing with housing and uh, job placement and that the needs of these groups are very different. So my advice to parents is if, if you encounter a resource, if someone recommends something and it doesn't work out, go to the next one, you know, try something else, see if those are your people. Um, and eventually you're going to find a community with a, a wealth of knowledge, uh, information they can share. This teacher's great. That teacher isn't, um, you know, if you move three streets over and you're in this school district, you know, services are better. Um, you know, that kind of thing. I think that voice that you're, that you're giving or that you're clarifying that parents can get, I, I, I find it that the educative part is very empowering, but it sounds like there's also a therapeutic value to a lot of these support groups is that they're experiencing the same sort of challenges on a regular basis. And it's almost uh, cathartic to go through the process of getting to talk about it and knowing I'm not the only one experiencing this or I'm not the only one that feels like, you know, my child's not getting enough care or that I have barriers that are placed on me that I can't get the insurance to give me all the hours I want or that the school won't let my child have supports in that sort of environment. Um, And it's that voice of sharing, I think, that creates more volume over time and that people are able to talk about it more and that becomes a project that they can move forward and have action to. Have you ever seen where, you know, families have been able to advocate, whether it's being able to get services in school, whether it's being able to get the appropriate level of care instead of having arbitrary limits on what they're doing? Have you, have you seen that firsthand where parents have had a voice in that process? Yes, absolutely. You know, I think um, the, it's, it's really, even though we've had insurance funded services for, you know, seven, eight years here in California, um, you know, these are still medical plans administering behavioral health services. And, you know, I can, I can speak from firsthand experience that the, the medical model, the, the model of, of care that an insurance company might be used to doesn't quite map onto ABA. Um, and so they are really looking for guidance. They are, they are looking for input. Um, and I think families have more of a voice than they think they, than they, than they realize they have. Um, you know, the, the squeaky wheel really does get the oil. Uh, my wife is very fond of saying that if you never ask, the answer is always no. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, feeling, feeling empowered enough to call up your insurance company and just say, you know, Hey, I I think I should be getting this. Why aren't I getting this? Um, can actually go a, a long way. Um, because, you know, again, even though it's only, it's been seven, eight years, we are still kind of navigating this together and things are, are changing so rapidly. Uh, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Yeah. And I, I think that that's something we oftentimes forget. And, and it shouldn't be a parent's job to go and get that medical part built out. But if they feel that there's ever an injustice, that their voice is so powerful in the process that they can, they can add on to the argument. They can help to persuade people to do the right thing. And I think that that is, that's that key piece that you're talking about is if you feel like, you know, I've been given a prescription or uh, my child isn't succeeded in is succeeding in different environments, 
But the guidance has been, yes, give them extra support. And there's some barrier there is that the family does have a role in being able to help move the barrier down the road. And that's where I think that lasting impression and legacy um, that Fida had was right there. It was, I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep pushing. It, there better be a good rationale to have no as an answer. <laughs> it's how do I get past the no and figure out how we can make that change. So, um, so what, if, what is it that you're seeing right now are the big issues that parents are able to get involved in that, that you're running into within, the, within autism in general? What are the things that parents still need to be aware about? Um, there are, at least here in, in California, there are, you know, three major, um, uh, clearinghouses for, for treatment. You have your insurance companies, you have your school districts, and then this California centric, uh, creation known as the regional center system. Um, and oftentimes parents are, are approaching, you know, one of those or two of those, but not all of those. Um, and you know, if we really want to create a, a 24 hour therapeutic environment where we have wraparound services that are meeting, you know, uh, a child's needs across domains, um, it really behooves families to seek out, um, services from all of these different entities. I'm not sure if there's something similar in Utah, uh, something analogous to the, the regional center system. You know, I think there are in most states where they have something running for the division of disabilities and for more of the human service angle of care that I think would echo those same sort of services. And I think that you see that state by state. Okay. So, you know, here locally, um, the, the regional center system um, provides things like respite care. Um, and you were talking before about, you know, the therapeutic effects of being in one of these, uh, being part of a parent group. Uh, we ask parents to do some very, very difficult things, things that run counter to every parenting instinct. Uh, and if you are not psychologically, emotionally healthy enough to be able to do those hard things, none of these dominoes are going to fall. You know, you're not going to have the, the, uh, the, the stress reduction, enough stress reduction to serve as an advocate, to make that extra call to the insurance company. Um, and things like respite care can really allow a parent to step back and take a break and, and spend the, the time and the energy on these, on these you know, secondary advocating type activities. And Scott, for those not familiar with respite care, I mean, what does that, what does that actually offer for the parents? What does it do? Um, and what's that service model look like? They can step back and, and uh, have someone else monitor their child's safety, not necessarily do a, a ton of teaching or anything like that, but uh, give parents a, a break. Um, and, you know, especially now, you know, in, in the times of COVID, um, you know, we have parents who are serving as full-time teachers in the mornings with their kids in virtual school, followed by full-time interventionists when, you know, the ABA person arrives. Um, there's, there's not a lot of extra time. Um, you know, you're cooking dinner, you're, you're doing laundry, you're doing all the things that, you know, a typical adult needs to do in the off hours. Um, and so, you know, respite allows parents to sort of step back um, and, and take some time for themselves, get psychologically healthy. Um, but, you know, that's the, a kind of service that, you know, if, uh, if a pediatrician says, you know, here's, here's your diagnosis of autism, go get yourself some ABA, they may not hear but here are these other community resources that are available to you. And so yeah. you know, a group like these parent support groups, the Autism Society of America, 
um, have these you know catalogs of of services out there that that you might be able to access. And I, th- I think that that's so important is that um, parenting a child with autism is an intense job in itself. Uh, parenting in general is exhausting. <laughs> now you're parenting a child who might have different needs than um, what maybe you're used to being able to provide for is that it's exhausting and, and it's, it's impactful on every part of your life is that utilizing those sorts of services um, like respite, uh, uh, group therapy for parents, um, having these community groups just to have a social network to talk about what's important in your life or what's driving your decision making um, all sounds super important. Now, now as, a, as a clinician, how are you guiding parents to find these places? I mean, are you making recommendations that would include that or are you giving them resources? How does, how does your organization tackle these problems or how do you do it personally? You know, there are, um, every community has either an autism society or a, uh, a feet group families for effective autism treatment, um, that can help connect parents. But yeah, I mean, we, we see our role as not necessarily advocating for the child, but certainly trying to empower the parent with the tools necessary to advocate effectively. No, it, it really sounds like as a, as both a parent and a community member, and then from your point of view, from a clinician standpoint, is that there are resources out there. But in order to find them, you have to ask questions. You have to advocate for yourself to be able to say, hey, I need this. How do I go about getting it? But then you have community partners, like what you might be to some of the families at the Autism Society, and then also as a clinician that's saying, these are the services that are going to be very advantageous for you to be a good partner for your child's care and to be able to better incorporate yourself back into the community rather than feeling stressed that I have this 24-7 job on top of my everyday life. Um, what would you tell parents? And if you have additional advice for parents of a child with autism, what, what, are, your, what are your closing thoughts on, you know, <laughs> hey, this is a stressful world we live in. Uh, this is what I'd be recommending. Let's see. I, you know, one thing that we do try to leave parents with um, is the idea of, of cutting yourself some slack. Um, meaning you don't have to be perfect. When I come home at night and I see my daughter, I know exactly what I should be doing. And I also know exactly what I'm about to do. <laughs> and those things are often very, very different. We, we try to encourage parents to systematically build throughout the day the amount of time where they are, are on, where they are going to do all the right things. You know, start with a half an hour. Do all the right things for a half an hour. When that starts going smoothly, increase to an hour and build from there. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you, if you look at autism as big capital A autism, it's going to be overwhelming. Let's break this into little chunks um, and, you know, work a little bit at a time. And, you know, I think the, the biggest thing that I encourage, and this sort of plays right into this idea of, of advocacy, is start planning long term. Think, th- start at the end and work your, work your way back. Um, to figure out the kinds of skills your child needs to learn, the kinds of services that, that you should be seeking out. Um, I think we're often so stuck in the moment that we don't, we don't step back and, and look at the larger picture. 
um, the Autism Society of Ventura County is focusing a lot on um, this, this bubble of ABA kids that have graduated or now young adults moving into their, their late 20s. Um, and when you, know, when you and I were providing treatment 20 years ago, we never thought about what these kids were going to look like at 35. We just were focusing on getting them to talk for the first time. Um, so, you know, if job placement is going to be an issue, what kind of, of um, vocational skills can we be teaching now? Um, if, uh, you know, for parents, financial planning, making sure ducks are in, in a row to make sure the child's cared for long term, um, that type of stuff can be really important. And making sure that as, a, as an ABA provider, that we are focusing on when we talk about you know, graduating kids or moving kids on from ABA treatment, that parents are equipped to serve every single role. A parent needs to be an interventionist, a consultant, an advocate uh, across the lifespan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, if, and if they're not equipped to take on all of those roles, then we shouldn't, we shouldn't be pushing them out. Uh, we, shouldn't be, we shouldn't be letting them fly until they're, they're equipped with all those skills. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it really rings home to me what you were talking about as, as far as being a consumer. I think that the biggest thing for parents is what you had expressed is that there should be a voice. They shouldn't be scared to have their voice is that their treatment is something that if they're getting substandard treatment, they should feel like they can talk through that, challenge the system, um, do what Vita might have done and, and keep pushing to get what her child needed whether that was uh, during COVID getting uh, access to better education and services for her child, whether that's as we are looking at this big picture is if there is a resource, if there's something that we feel like is being restricted, if access to care isn't there, is that the only way that that's going to be out there for parents is if they are their own advocate and build that community like the autism society might be uh, and be able to offer to them but build that community so that their voice grows over time and that they can start to fight for those resources for their children. And that could be the adult services you just talked about. Where's the funding going to come for that? Where are the uh, additional resources to be able to provide that service coming from? But it takes that voice. It takes the ability to be able to shout from the rooftops at a time, but also to be able to come together in these parent groups to be able to discuss what are the real challenges. Um, I appreciate, uh, Scott, your time today. And I think that all that you're doing at the Autism Society of America and all you're doing clinically is amazing. I think it empowers so many families. And I'm glad that you're there for, uh, as a resource for them. No problem. Thanks for having me. I'll, I'll come back anytime. This was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you again next week.